Welcome to Things Musicians Don't Talk About with me, your host, Hattie Butterworth. I'm a cellist and writer in my final year at the Royal College of Music in London, and I think we need a new way of talking. I've spent many, many years feeling in the dark about issues in the classical music profession. So often it can feel like you're the only person struggling with anxiety, depression, career doubts, money, injuries, and so much more. Who do we go to when we feel we've had enough, for whatever reason? Join me and guests as we end the stigma with honest conversations about the things musicians don't talk about. Hello everybody, welcome back to another episode. Um, The last few weeks and the few weeks to come are very exciting. Um, I've got a lot of podcasts lined up to come out and I've got a few lined up to record and I just feel like... There's a lot of um, unknowns in the world at the moment and a lot of darkness. And what I've really felt in the last month is the bravery of people who want to come forward and share with us their stories to help others and to bring about change and connection in our community as musicians and creatives and whoever else is listening. You're all still incredibly welcome. Um, and especially in this episode, because I think, aside from the fact that my guest is an amazing composer, organist and pianist, the issues he has struggled with um, go far beyond being a musician. Um, what he has suffered with is something that is incredibly stigmatised still and is something that I have become more and more passionate about speaking openly about because so today I'm interviewing Matt Gear, who, as I say, is a composer, pianist and organist um, who has recently graduated from the Guildhall School of Music and Drama in London. And he has suffered with schizoaffective disorder, which he'll talk more about. Um, but it basically is a combination of both bipolar disorder and schizophrenia and is something that... Um, he suffered with for many years but has since his undergraduate become um, more difficult and we speak about this and how he's managed his diagnosis and also how he's turned a traumatic time in hospital into an opera through his um, writings in his diaries and composing in a time of um, mania and we talk about why perhaps there is this stigma and what we can do to break it and especially how we can educate younger people about it. Um, but not only this, we also talk about um, Matt's faith journey and his um, discovery of the Franciscans and becoming a brother in the Third Order of St Francis and talk about why you know, we've we've both had a complicated faith journey within the Christian church and why that is and how the rise of more evangelical right-wing churches within youth um, church and within universities can not always be in line with young people's views and can cause young people to hold perhaps... Um, misinformed views about Christianity and about Christians and so yeah we we had an incredibly 
amazing, <laughs> insightful discussion about that and about how um, faith and mental health, although they can serve one another, how actually they are separate in, in a lot of ways and how Matt's mental health in some ways actually um, caused his faith to be in a way confused um but yeah we talk about that and I just really urge you to listen to this episode and yes if you want to find out more about Matt um you can he has a website which is www.mattgear.co.uk I feel like I need to double check that but I think that's right um and yeah please enjoy this episode and keep in touch Hello, Matt. It's lovely to be talking to you today. How are you doing? I'm not doing too bad, thanks. Yeah, how are you doing? Yeah, I'm. I'm fine. I'm. Yeah, having having a good week actually. I'm incredibly excited to be talking to you because this conversation. I mean, we um, emailed about it a few months ago, and you know, it's been kind of. I've been thinking about it for so long, and I just think this is going to be one of the most important conversations that is had on this podcast and I just want to say thank you so much for agreeing to talk today because I know your story is going to help a lot of people. I know, no, it's not a pleasure. Thank you. So I just thought maybe if we could start maybe by you telling us a bit about your musical journey first of all. Musically, who are you, what do you do um, and where have you come from in, in that respect? Sure, um, I didn't come from a musical background seems to be quite a common phrase and that's true of me um I was born in Hastings right next to sort of beautiful Ecclesbourne's Glens and Fairlight and I still stand today it's the walks over there are just the most beautiful places I've ever been I know it's because it's home but also it's just incredibly beautiful and I had a fairly normal upbringing father was a firefighter um um, mum was um, worked in admin and come from an utterly sort of non-musical background. Um, I, I think music for me was probably quite an isolating thing um, growing up, which appealed to me. I often just sort of sat in practice rooms and wrote music or played the piano. So, um, and that's obviously come alive today following this um you know you you say you played the piano and comp- and composed that are those are sort of main musical outlets you've had yeah I'm I yeah I don't play any other instruments I I started playing the organ um at the age of about 14 okay um and that was that was sort of a really positive experience um and then conservatoire going to Guildhall where studied was um quite an impulsive decision as well um nothing has ever felt very planned um and yeah i i think that i've never real i've never really had that sort of long-term ambition to do anything i've been might be how i've been brought up but i'm much more comfortable with sort of living day to day than sort of living to looking towards the future. I'm definitely like you in that way. Yeah, I'm really bad with like these five-year plans that people have and stuff. I, I'm not. Yeah, I, I don't have that kind of view of it either. 
Um, so with Guildhall, have you now left? When did you graduate from Guildhall or are you still there? Yeah, I graduated um, in this July. Okay. Which, um, so that was a, took me five years to do an undergrad, which is fine. <laughs> um, and I've just started a new course, a PhD at Belfast Queen's Uni, um, where I'm doing a bit of composition, a bit of sort of aesthetics, philosophy, things mm, like that. That's amazing. So, um, but you're doing that based in London still, is that right? Yes. So is it all because, online or? Yeah, pretty okay. much. <laughs> yeah, I, I feel like I, I was thinking of moving over to Northern Ireland and it really did appeal to me because I thought, oh, just it's such a phenomenally beautiful place. Yeah. Um, and I can sort of, I found a little two big cottage about 30 miles out of Belfast I could just sort of live a quite sort of hermetic life in and get the bus in every few days oh my goodness <laughs> I, thought, I thought that would be fantastic yeah. but, um, I decided to live in London fair enough <laughs> maybe that'll come later yeah hopefully I'm sure it will you know through I've actually read a bit of your blog that you have online and I you know read what you'd written to me and also looked about and it's quite clear that composition for you has been a very important part of not only your way of expressing yourself but also as a means of communicating your mental health challenges and I'm wondering whether you could speak now about how your mental health has affected you in the past and what it is you you struggle with. Yes so it was started sort of brewing from about the age of 14 or 15, but I didn't know it was a problem with my mental health. Um, I didn't really think of it in that way. I started hearing voices when I was about 14 and I didn't know what voices were um, until about the age of 19, 20, when I, it sort of clicked actually, you know, these are voices. And I, they were just very sparse voices saying things like very very mundane things like sort of oh the sky is blue or Mm. the tree is over there or someone is behind you um and I thought everyone had them to be quite honest I thought they were just they was they were sparse enough not to be noteworthy yeah (laughs) or to yeah not to be noteworthy so um they I started Guildhall and I think just the combination of a new environment and also having really bad food poisoning, which really stressed me out and confused my eating habits and everything, um, caused the voices to just grow and get worse. And in 2016, late 2016, early 2017, I started suffering from psychosis. I had various manic episodes, which I didn't know were mania. I wasn't receiving any support or anything. I just sort of went and brought things like a two grand bike, 1,500 pound bike and um, various instruments. I I went to HSBC and asked to take out a 30,000 pound loan, I think, Mm. at one point. And it wasn't picked up or anything because it was because it's episodic yeah. and when when you're sort of in it you don't know you're in it 
Whereas with depression, I've found that, um, you know, you're in it. And it's almost a little bit more um, clear how to deal with it. Mm. So, um, yeah, the, the mania just got worse and worse. And I ended up in hospital for about five, five and a half months um, in a psychiatric unit. Goodness knows how I didn't get sectioned. <laughs> um, I was really, really fortunate enough with a sort of really good team to to remain as a um, as a voluntary patient. And yeah, I so I've got I got diagnosed with schizoaffective disorder in 2018, and then ever since, just sort of slowly started to recover. Mm-hmm. Thank you for yeah sharing that with such openness and. I think this is something I'm so passionate about talking about purely because I think there's so much people don't realise about it and people don't understand about it. And even me, you know, just the things I've seen in the media about schizophrenia or schizoaffective disorder have, you know, there aren't very many positive stories about, I mean, they are coming out, luckily, but I mean, five years ago or whatever, when you started suffering from extreme, um, you know, mania and psychosis and things. Did you feel like there was this huge stigma? How, how did you get over that feeling of... How did you come to terms with the diagnosis, basically, is what I'm asking. Yeah, it felt very much like saying the S word as, as a swear word mm. when I thought about it. When, and um, I didn't really use the word schizophrenia for quite a while, um, in hospital, I sort of got used to the term bipolar. It, it's still, I mean, I, there's no, I don't really have an answer because it still feels like a dirty word. Mm. Um, it still feels like a bit of a scary word. And I think I think the one thing that does ground me a little bit is my psychiatrist told me, um, it, well, she, she said it's most likely a lot more, but diagnosed cases, it's about one in a hundred people hear voices. And um, most of them are through schizophrenia. You can hear voices through anything. You can hear through voices through having a panic attack, generalised anxiety mm. disorder, you need polio depression, anything. Um, a lot of people with OCD have hallucinations and things. So um, I think just the fact of knowing it's a little bit more common than, than I thought it was, was was a little bit consoling. Yeah, I think you're you're really right there. And I mean... For me, um, you know, I'll be really honest that I, my OCD, which I have been quite open about, my OCD has often been around the fear of having schizophrenia just because it feels very often like voices, like intrusive thoughts. And I'm sure you probably have dealt with similar kind of intrusive thoughts and things like that through it. They feel sometimes incredibly loud and incredibly real. And I've often thought, you know, is this the start of something purely because, you know, I don't, I haven't heard or we're not told about people with schizophrenia and that they can live amazing lives. You know, that isn't something that is very often talked about. So a lot of people can develop this huge fear of, of quote unquote, mad people just because they, there isn't the enough exposure to, to people that have these symptoms and have these experiences and live amazing lives. Like, as you say, one in a hundred people, that's a lot of people. And that's just the diagnosed people. So a lot of people are living with these symptoms 
but we aren't talk they aren't they aren't talked about and that you're so right it is like a dirty word and that's hor- that's a horrible thing to have to to have to say in 2020 isn't it like it's still a dirty word for one in a hundred people something they suffer from like yeah I'm, I mean it's and it's interesting you say about with OCD and I think there's a I, I'm I mean this has no real backing whatsoever but it's just sort of my opinion that I think psychosis sort of is a bit of a spectrum and you can get things like magical thinking yeah in OCD where you um you know that something isn't going to happen if if you do an action or if you have a behavior you have a reinforcing behavior you think that something might something bad might happen but you know it isn't going to happen but you have to do it anyway in psychosis you're doing something because you absolutely firmly believe that something bad is going to happen and we all have those sorts of thoughts and feelings and so maybe to just understand it a little bit like that. Yeah. Um, um, and and that also sort of shows how easy it is to to develop things like psychosis because um, often reinforced behaviour can lead to sort of paranoia. Paranoia can lead to um, unusual um, beliefs. So yeah, um, I'm just wondering if you know how have you managed your mental health since your time in hospital, you know, how, how has the recovery process looked like for you? Do you still suffer from symptoms? Do you take medications? Like how, how have you managed that recovery? Yeah. I mean, the, the, I still suffer symptoms every day. I've, I, there's very rarely a day where I don't hear voices. Okay. Um, the medication, I've got to be honest, the medication is probably the single biggest thing that's helped, um, unfortunately or fortunately depending how you look at it um I take yeah antipsychotics which have kept me out of psychosis and lithium especially um really does help with the mania um I've I've been on antidepressants but they haven't worked as much for me I found that more holistic things things like talking therapy have really helped with Mm. the depression um it's strange because this psychiatric medication unlike it's sort of a little bit sinkier in its medical discipline that medication hasn't really changed in the last 20 30 years we're still prescribing things like lithium for for mania which is sort of good in a way that we know it works but also unfortunate in that there's not really much we can we can do about it we still don't really understand how why people hear voices um so it's much more about looking towards more holistic approaches and things like mindfulness obviously really really beneficial I've been doing it every day since hospital and in a hospital and just talking about as well just being really honest knowing what your triggers are recognizing them yeah so yeah do you find that a stressful period of time will usually aggravate your symptoms absolutely Yeah. yeah I I used to have a sort of daily one monthly rhythm um where I'd fall into I'd have about 10 days of mania 10 days rest 10 days depression 10 days rest something like that Mm. um and now I've got a little bit better episodes only really happen when I'm stressed um or when I'm ruminating on things that sort of 
snowball out of control. Yeah. So um, a lot of it is stress management. So. Also through, you know, reading more about you. And actually, we have a couple of mutual friends um, who have talked to me about this opera that you wrote called Sane and Sound. You know, everyone I've spoke to that was part of this project has talked to me about how great it is. And even before I'd heard of you, people would talk about this opera to me. And, you know, it was written as a response to your schizophrenia. And I was just wondering if you could talk about the process of writing this opera and what was the process of composing it like and what did you want to put across through writing it? Yeah, I mean, I have no recollection of writing it. Um, I wrote it all, pretty much all, during psychosis in hospital. I, the libretto just comes directly from diaries that I had in hospital um, where I was... It was interesting, actually, because you'd, you'd look at them, you'd have several pages of thinking that I was president of the country or something, or, and then you'd see the sudden shift in in the bipolar and I immediately changed to depression and um, it would be very much um, very self-destructive writing. So um, I, I, I pretty much took the, the text from the diaries as is and then the music sort of just fell in place. I was still manic when I wrote the music so it's nothing like I'd ever write now. The orchestration is just bizarre and peculiar and doesn't really work on any level. Yeah, I it, I feel very detached from all the whole writing process. Um, yeah. yeah, what yeah. do you think that... Has that... Um, I mean, listening to it back, because I'm assuming you went to the performances, you know, was that quite uncomfortable to know that? Or did it change the way that you've thought about your composition since? Yeah, I mean... the. The first performance, actually, I was staying in a crisis house at that point. I was really not in a very good place. Mm. And I was sort of let out to go and see the performance. And I remember going back that evening to the crisis house and somehow feeling really comforted, really relieved, Mm. because these voices that were just eroding me eroding me every single day um were just suddenly up on the stage and completely detached from me and I just felt really like I don't know grounded and in control that actually this is me and that's them rather than they are me yeah um it made me yeah it made me realize that maybe those thoughts aren't what I'm really thinking maybe it's just an illness after all yeah and and that that in itself reminds or makes me feel so at one with you and with everyone suffering from mental illness because that is the one thing I think we all have is that when you're at your worst you feel so deep in it and as if it's completely part of you and there's no way you'll ever detach yourself from it you know but that what you said there like that is the absolute kind of crux of healing in a way isn't it is to be able to see your illness for what it is and as a separate part of you and it's the same with thoughts it's the same with intrusive thoughts it's the same with moods and and all of that and I think that's amazing that that you were able to see that on 
on the first night of the performance. That's just, yeah. That must have really changed a lot for you to see it like that. Absolutely. It was it was quite a powerful yeah. experience, um, even if it was quite strange watching a piece. Yeah, I think also because probably you feel like these voices, you, you I mean, you can't share them with many people, just like, you know, sometimes you don't want to share your thoughts with people when they're dark. And I think there's a lot to be said for just having them, having them there, having them real, you know, do you know what I mean? Like, does it feel like you have to keep them to yourself? Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, I there hasn't, since the voices had sort of got really bad, sort of 2015, around then, I there hasn't really been a day where I felt, I haven't felt like I'm putting on an act, almost. Social situations and things, um, most, nearly all of the time when I'm, speaking to someone in person and having voices and I'm not I don't really feel fully engaged with the conversation I don't really feel fully grounded in my surroundings and everything and yeah it feels the condition makes you feel very extra in the world I think and so to be able to have a sit with a whole audience as a collective group of people and experience these things um experience these external voices rather than internal voices mm. was was very powerful and actually the really interesting thing was how the voices my own voices were shouting back at the voices on stage and sort of Derek was talking to Derek and things like that which is quite that's funny. really that is quite funny <laughs> that's really that's amazing <laughs> Probably didn't really understand what was going on. Like, <laughs> no, no, I've like broken the system. Yeah. <laughs> um, so I'm really interested to hear what reactions did you have from people that were watching it and watched it? You know, how did people respond to this? It, it was really positive. I got a lot of hugs, which Aww, was really nice. Yeah. Um, which I sort of, it wasn't really about that. Um, it was, I think, much more just about presenting um it, I, I wasn't trying to achieve anything from it I was literally just trying to write some music um so it was nice that it had that sort of effect on people yeah I'm really pleased um the the wonderful mental health activist Johnny Benjamin also got involved in your opera can you talk about you know how did you get in touch with him and what part did he play in in all of this yes so um my mum's fault actually um I think I think she'd watched he um he'd written a book and brought out a um there was a documentary I think it was on channel four it's called Stranger on the Bridge it's released in 2014 I think in May and it was about um a social media campaign called Find Mike where um he was searching for this stranger who talked him off a bridge um, that he was trying to jump off in 2008. And he sort of got quite published, got, got a lot of publicity for this. But um, he, the thing that really interested me was he was diagnosed with schizoaffective disorder um, and also started experiencing voices, auditory hallucinations from about 10. 
and had then which then led to depression which was pretty much exactly the sort of same journey I'd had mm-hmm. um in terms of mental health so um I just emailed him he agreed to come along and give a little talk at the beginning and um he's he's a he's an extraordinary person to he does vlogs on youtube and he 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 just pulls out his camera if he's in psychotic depression in hospital he just pulls out his camera and talks to the camera about how he wants to end his life in absolute tears which just was really is really powerful to watch Mm. um to watch someone talk about that talk that candidly about um the mental health it was really inspiring I think yeah totally and you know it must be so important for anybody suffering with schizoaffective disorder to have somebody that candid and that you know open about their struggles because I don't know if before him there were many people saying it on that level expressing their symptoms on that on his the level that he has no I I I hadn't growing up I haven't experienced the only I'm pretty much like everyone else the only sort of experience I've had of schizophrenia is um through the media through mm. yeah crime literally, <laughs> <Yeah>. literally. <laughs> yeah. um yeah there was this video he did that I watched um that I loved which was called some I think it was called sometimes I'm schizoaffective sometimes I'm normal or something have you seen yeah. that yeah I, I absolutely loved that that changed so much for me about learning about the disorder and everything because he's just like sometimes I have cereals <laughs> sometimes I don't and then it's sort of like the next part is like him suffering from a symptom but it's just all it's all quite it brings humor in really well doesn't it and it's like it just shows the day-to-day like reality that sometimes it's very dark but sometimes it's just normal and sometimes it's funny and yeah that- I found that really powerful that's the thing it's it's just a normal illness <laughs> like every other illness in the world um yeah and there's there's symptoms just like you have pain in your leg sometimes you have pain <laughs> in your head <laughs> yeah but why do you think there's still such a big stigma related to schizophrenia and psychosis because you know other mental health issues like depression and anxiety you know we're seeing so much awareness for them all the time but I feel like the, you know, awareness around schizophrenia feels behind. And, you know, what, why do you think that could be? I, yeah, I've got no idea. I, 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 is it, I don't know if it's maybe because it's slightly less common. I, I, obviously, there's, the, there's much more of a, historically, there's much more of a fear. I think around the conditions, you have these sort of images of people in asylums um, that sort of... Uh, locked up. I was speaking to my nan and granddad actually, and my nan recalls um, in an old hospital going down to a sort of massive great corridor where they just used to keep the the people. I think they called them the uncurables. Oh my god! <laughs> yeah, um, who yeah had if they were here today probably be under an early intervention team and diagnosed with psychosis and be on some fantastic antipsychotic medication that really helped them but um I think there is still a little bit of a sort of underfloor feeling about um 
about psychotic illness mm. and about psychosis in general, I think. Um, I think the fact that both when you're in it and for the people around you feel completely helpless and out of control, maybe. Um, yeah. It's probably the, the fear as well of, you know, you becoming someone else, not becoming, but like presenting as something different from what you are in a way that probably scares people. But, you know, it, it's an illness. <laughs> it's not. Yeah. I mean, that's the thing. I mean, having spent time in hospital around people with quite severe paranoid schizophrenia and psychosis and everything it's very scary um it's very scary for the people around you as well there there is a risk there is always going to be a risk of if you're paranoid and you think someone's gonna hurt you and you're in psychosis you're gonna potentially try and defend yourself Mm -hmm. um and that is a risk and that's a reality but if you're in nowadays um, if you're in that state of mind, you're going to be in hospital, most likely. Day to day, that's not going to happen. Day to day, I'm just going to maybe talk accidentally talk to myself occasionally um, and th- things like that. It's perfectly harmless. Yeah. That's the other thing I, I read about, that there's this huge misconception that, you know, your paranoia might you know, lead you to be dangerous or to hurt somebody else. But quite often it's actually the opposite and it's more aimed at yourself. I I learned that actually these voices are more likely to tell you to either hurt yourself or rather than being directed at someone else. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, nearly all of my voices are around hurting myself, injuring myself and ending my own life, Um, even when I'm feeling pretty much okay. Um, and actually, I mean, I, I do have horrible intrusive thoughts, just like anyone does if you're like standing on a train platform. Um, I, th- I think you wouldn't be human if you didn't have the intrusive thought, oh my gosh, imagine if I fell and yeah. pushed someone on the track or something. Yeah. Um, but the fact that we're scared of that thought makes us makes it okay yeah exactly (laughs) and I have those thoughts and voices a lot and I'm really scared of them and yeah that sort of proves that I think it's okay yeah and it's totally (laughs) normal completely yeah Yeah, and and this is sort of the other thing is you know uh, it's kind of going off topic but because it's such a united experience and you know I've suffered with you know, those thoughts on a very extreme level around my OCD. And it started for me when I was, you know, eight years old, I'd have really intense harm thoughts about hurting other people and hurting myself. And I just kind of, now looking back, I know how helpless and terrified I was as a young child, not knowing that fear was in a way normal. And I I mean, I don't know if you have an idea of how we can talk to younger children about mental health or raising awareness that these intrusive thoughts or whatever are something that can be treated? Because I think there are a lot of children that really do suffer in silence still. Yeah, I mean, I think we've just got to be 
much more specific yeah. <laughs> about how we talk about mental health. It's it's fantastic talking about sort of a general um, mental well-being and everything. But I think just talking more specifically about different illnesses mm. and, and different symptoms as well, not necessarily illnesses, but different thoughts and feelings and behaviours that people can have that um, may be upsetting for some people and the people around you um, and how we can maybe best deal with them. Yeah, and actually, in a way, protecting children from that, you know, what I, th- I think that's what happened to me is my parents or whoever around me wanted to protect me from, you know, the realities of mental illness or what some suicidal people might do or whatever. And and I think because I only knew parts of the story, I didn't really know that they were suffering from an illness that would probably be cured or helped. I think then my brain made up the rest of the story, that this was an endless struggle. and You know what I mean? And, and I think that's something that's really dangerous is we try and protect children maybe, but then we end up causing more harm because there's so much they don't then know or don't realise is hoping you know what I mean no absolutely yeah um so I I was just wondering um many composers in the past have very clearly suffered with you know mental health issues and you know it's very well known that Tchaikovsky was incredibly you know suicidal with the thought about being gay and I mean Schumann didn't come to a very good end in that way either. Um, But why then, in the classical music profession, we have all of these incredible composers who made amazing music and we play it all day, every day. You know, why then is it still really hard to talk, you know, about mental illness in classical music profession? You know, do you think that this suffering is kind of glamorised in the composers a little bit? Yeah, I mean, there's there's definitely the the stereotype, the tortured composer, and yeah. um, the more sort of mentally unwell and reclusive you are, the, the better your music's going to be, which is just a load of rubbish. Yeah. <laughs> um, I think collaboration's like the best thing in the world. Um, but um, yeah, I, 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 I don't, I don't know if there's a biological link, biochemical link between creativity and um, mental health. There might be, there might not be, but I feel like. I think we we often say like all of these extraordinary composers have mental health problems. Well, that I feel like that might be just because they were well known, and a lot of people had mental health difficulties that just weren't diagnosed, mm. and we sort of diagnose them because we know them. Yeah, I'm not sure. Yeah, but, um, I feel like it was a lot more common. Still, it, it's not like um, mental health has necessarily rose massively it's I think our diagnosis our ability to diagnose has has risen this is the thing isn't it like the thing that really angers me sometimes is you know I remember being on a music course and talking to the tutor the cello tutor on that and he was saying oh it's disgusting you know how many young people are taking antidepressants these days and I was thinking oh my god like that is not, that is amazing. You know, okay, it's terrible that they've suffered, but it's amazing that there's something they've found to help, you know? And Absolutely. I think that view isn't as clear to some people. It's sort of often like, oh God, that's terrifying. How many people are, 
are dealing with it. You know, that's just that's just awful. That's horrible. Like they clearly haven't found you know meditation. <laughs> it's like oh, this is an illness. Like it's it's not as simple as that. And it's actually kind of wonderful that we have the resources to be able to provide mentally ill people with help. You know. No, absolutely. Mm. So, kind of to finish on this sort of topic, what what do you wish people would understand about bipolar and, in general, schizoaffective disorder? Like, what is the thing you're always wanting people to know about it, or know about how it feels to suffer with it? I think I'm more concerned about just people recognizing. Um, recognising difficulties in their own mental health and making sure that they don't fall into the same trap that I did because I put off getting help for so long. Um, And that definitely led to um, my mental health deteriorating a lot quicker. Um, And also dealing dealing with this young was incredibly important. I mean, if I'd have had the same sort of I hate the word breakdown, but I'm going to use it anyway, breakdown as it were, um, then um, it, it, uh, sort of the age of 40, if maybe, maybe I'd had sort of a family and job and things. I mean, I can see things falling apart very easily, but all I had to really do was just defer my uni course by a year and move back home for a bit, which, which, and I had a student loan that I was living on, which didn't stop or anything. That was all fine. So um, I think just, making sure that um, you recognise the symptoms in yourself um, is really important. And also if if you sort of come across people who are struggling, just give them space and time and mm. be okay. Yeah, thank you so much for that. That's really important. And I think the way you've talked about it has just opened so many so much of of my understanding and I'm sure a lot of other people's um and I just kind of want to talk kind of briefly just because I think it's also important about you know your faith and your identity as a Christian um I know we've spoken on email about it and we're both kind of in a similar um space with our our faith in that it's something that is very important to us but also feels quite difficult to talk about because of maybe the misconceptions people have around Christians and <laughs> and all of that and I just wondered if you could maybe tell us a bit about your faith journey and and how how things are going in that way for you now yeah I mean it's it's definitely a it, it fluctuates I'd say um I've I've been I'm currently being um, sort of on the journey of becoming a tertiary in the um, third society, the um, third order society of St Francis. Um, just because I found um, I was finding it really difficult to find a, a a segment of of the church that really resonated with me. Mm. So um, I f- I found I came across the writings of St Francis and. And found that um, his emphasis on, I think, treating individual, I think, individual to individual contact was probably the single most important thing that 
that, that we can focus on rather than sort of creating tribes and things like that. So um, at, the, at the moment, I'm, I'm sort of exploring that. Yeah. And can you talk about why, you know, you were struggling to find your place in the church? I mean, what is it that the Third Order of St. Francis, you know, gives that maybe some other parts of the church don't? I think it gives you the, and, and, and I think if, if someone asked me the, what's the one thing the Bible's missing, which is the, probably the worst thing, um, I'd say scepticism, the ability to question is one of the most fantastic mm. virtues of human life. And I think the Franciscans um, have given me and have presented me with an openness and ability to be able to, be sceptical as a human, be able to question convention and quench and question what we believe. Um, whereas I feel like quite a lot of religion that's going around, especially in universities, is much more quite authoritarian, I'd say, and very much, um, I, was, I don't think people really understand how right-wing and how evangelical mm. a lot of um, young Christian movements are um, in the UK. Yeah. And there's a, there's a big disparity there. Yeah, it's taken away a lot of the mystery that is at the heart of the Christian faith, I feel. You know, it's taken what should be a kind of individual journey to, you know, peace and love and you know connection with one another and it's made that into you know a sort of binary view of what's wrong and how you can avoid eternal hell and you know and and then sadly that is the loudest voice perhaps at the moment and that's the voice that most people will hear and yet it's not really the reality of most Christians in in the UK, I I would say, you know, no, absolutely not. I I I find it really difficult how um, how divisive I think these things tend to be. Um, I think we've almost in these movements lost the ability to criticise ourselves. Um, it's um, it's very much non-confessional religion. <laughs> um, my, I've got a the church that where I'm organist at. Um, one of the choir members often says that um, the people that point fingers and wave their fingers at other people don't realise that there's three fingers pointing back at them, which I, <laughs> <laughs> I really love. Um, um, so yeah, I and and I also find it really difficult that the the disparity between um, the the general aesthetic of these churches. The, the fact that if you go to, for example, an Anglo-Catholic church with immense amount of spirituality, I'd say, and um, openness and and liberalism, acceptance of of um, of various causes, um, quite often pro same-sex marriage, things like that, mm. um, and yet they're their liturgy is very much traditional, high, lots of Latin, things like that. And yet the, 
the student churches, the young churches, with no real fixed structure, um, are with and lots of sort of praise bands and flashing lights and everything, are often the most right-wing, conservative, evangelical, anti-Semitic, homophobic, sexist, <laughs> misogynistic um, places. You can keep going. Um, you know, yeah, 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 that I've ever visited, yeah. yeah. And I think the problem is they have programmes, they sort of draw people in and yes. they don't necessarily realise that, students don't necessarily realise that that's what they're going into and then it, they only realise when it's sort of too late and yeah. they've sort of become a part of the problem as it were yeah I mean were were you brought up in a Christian household I was but um it was very open like we were Mm. never we never really spoke about it my mum and dad um never forced anything upon us and always I think gave us the uh, option and openness to question things yeah um and yeah, we ne- we never really spoke about things in yeah. in the house unless we wanted to, um, which I think is the best thing, <laughs> best way to bring someone up. I, I think as well, though, you know, I I've never really talked about it on here, but um, I was brought up in a vicarage, and until I was ten, my dad was you know a vicar, and then he retired, and now I feel that. In a way, I'm privileged in that because he was, he is, and was very liberal and very open and accepting of all people, and that was the sort of church that I knew. I didn't really understand then, when I was getting older, why people would then view my Christianity as something negative. Because um, I was like, but I'm just like you, like I believe the same things as you. And and I think what's hard is that if you haven't been brought up in a Christian environment it's kind of like people that don't know classical music, like you're not going to be likely to know the churches that are going to be in line with what you believe. You know, you, you're not, you're going to see the evangelical churches first if you're interested because that's the loudest voice and that's what's shining out. You know what I mean? So I feel privileged that I know, I've been brought up to know kind of the levels and and how to be in a church service, because that's also something that's very alien to a lot of people. Absolutely, yeah. Mm. I mean, and, and I think the thing is as well, the, the the role of these sorts of churches, that isn't necessarily um, their ambition. Quite, I mean, to quote an old employer who I worked at, um, always used to use the, the quote, preaching of necessarily used words, which I think is the most important thing we can um we can remember um about about living in sort of constant um parents through our actions rather than sort of just trying to get as many bodies as, yeah, <laughs> as possible exactly exactly and there's um, a lot to be said for you know the power of prayer in that way as well and how prayer leads us to each other and I think that's a big part of maybe being Franciscan or that outlook is it's not so much about forcing people in but putting out this message of love and watching people come back to you or come to you I think that's 
that's the thing. I mean, prayer, prayer is such an important part of my life. I'd say, mm. and I, I've, I, I don't. It's probably been seven or eight years since I've actually sat down with my eyes closed and my hands, <laughs> um, hands together. I, I never ever do that. Prayer for me is a, is is a continual daily thing that I do about, and it's much more about trying to live presently in the present moment, much more akin with. Um, things like mindfulness and about doing good and about trying to do things um, through the right sort of motivation rather than the wrong sort. Yeah. Um, yeah. D- did you feel that your mental health um, experiences made your faith stronger? Um, it, I, I would say so. Um, it's, it's difficult to say that because... Um, I'm quite often told, oh, well, a lot of people find religion, as it were, after after they experience um, um, some sort of grievance or tragedy or loss yeah. or something. But um, it, it was very much continual through it. I, it mm. I think it definitely made me question how I currently practised my religion. Um, and it... For a period, for quite a long period of time, it made me quite unsure about things, um, and that probably led me to the Franciscans, because um, obviously, experiencing psychosis, um, you're you're bound to think you're God at some stage. You're bound <laughs> to have yeah, yeah. grandiose thoughts, um, and so to realise how how easy it is to to believe something. Um, that is absolutely ludicrous and then come out of psychosis and not understand how you could possibly believe that um, was was very confusing. Yeah, my goodness. Um, so it, it it can't be through... I think my, my faith now is much more... is much less um, about emotion and much more about the humanity side of it. Yeah. Um, and trying to be humble and things like that. I, I totally agree with that because I think there's this um, kind of feeling for me at least at the start of my faith journey as well of like looking for those nice emotions the sort of squishy like spiritual emotions <laughs> but you're right like when everything is horrendous for you when everything is going wrong you know it's it's in that moment when you sit to pray that you kind of learn the most it's like when you feel you can't, when you feel most sort of stuck in a way is the most important time. I, that's what I've learned anyway. And I think that's such a good point to take emotion less seriously in, in faith. And it's obviously a positive thing sometimes, but it's not everything. No, absolutely. We've got it's For me, it has to be a continual daily, hourly, minute by minute thing i i don't that i mean that's why i don't go to churches with lots of sort of loud exciting music and everything and lights because i don't confuse the holy spirit for people singing and shouting and getting excited around you because you're going to feel happy no matter what (laughs) um i think i i am much more interested in in how we can live with faith outside those moments than inside those moments. Um, yeah, 
that's really really interesting i yeah i'm I'm just completely uh yeah <laughs> uplifted by talking to you. Your story is so important, and thank you for you know sharing and giving us the opportunity to talk about this and to talk and to break what is the most irritating stigma. <laughs> and, you know, I hope it goes on, and especially in the classical music profession, you know, people are, we're going to have, naturally going to have people that are sensitive and struggle. And that is, of course, it leads us to some very difficult places if you struggle with mental health, but also it's an amazing thing. And I, I want us to be able to accept all, all spectrums of struggle and just thank you so much for sharing yours. Oh, no, it's a pleasure. Thank you so much. No problem.